Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of The Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. What an episode we have for you today with our special guest, Greg Garrett. Greg is the CEO and Managing Director of CGS Advisors. And and what is CGS Advisors, you might ask? They are a boutique strategy and innovation advisory firm. As such, Greg and his team pushes the limits of corporate cultures by developing and implementing unique strategies that capitalize on technology-oriented disruptions to industries and markets. As you can imagine, Greg has a ton a value to share. And we're going to talk about a number of things, some of them being why starting his first company at age 16 set Greg on the path to lifelong entrepreneurship, why he chose to leave his previous employer and create CGS Advisors, why Greg titled his book, Competing in the Connecting World, The Future of Your Industry is Already Here. And inside of that book, one of the things Greg talks about is why focusing their clients on the transformation first mile. I love this. The transformation first mile is so important to helping firms see where the future in their industry is going, disruption in the industry, and then helping them get there. And Greg takes that transformation first mile and he breaks it down into three steps. First step is to envision the disruptive potential, understand what's going on in the industry, and what capabilities are necessary to succeed in it. Then the second part, as you can imagine, is assessing your capability gaps and the magnitude of them, with the last piece being investing in the response. Greg will also talk about why it's important to prepare and not predict, why speed is critical to success in moving forward, and how inertia makes people change slowly. Why, as a leader, it is necessary to be able to pull people away from one role to put them in a better position to succeed in a different position. And this is where the coaching comes in. And then how rewarding it is when you see they realize that it was the correct move despite their initial pushback. Now, in full disclosure, before we get started here, there are a few moments of challenging sound quality. Just a couple couple little glitches, not for an extended period of time. Stay with it, folks. I'm telling you, every single thing Greg has to say has an incredible amount of value. Enjoy the episode. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today on the Athletics of Business podcast. I am humbled and fired up uh, to have you with us. No, thanks so much for having me. So, Greg, let's let's really just jump right into you are the CEO and managing director of CGS Advisors. Can you tell us tell us what you do at CGS? Tell us how CGS came to to be about what it is absolutely that's your singleness of purpose there. Yeah, sure. CGS Advisors is a transformation uh, advisory firm. We do advisory work. We do consulting work. We break those two into uh, two different uh, categories. Advisory really helping leaders at corporations, mostly large enterprise, but uh, some smaller, medium size as well. Uh, advising them on where the the future is going, what's happening, disruption in industry, where they need to take their firm, and then consulting, helping them to get there. We call that whole thing the uh, transformation first mile, uh, recognizing and doing some of the planning, mostly advisory work. And then helping them to to kind of walk the first portions of the change, removing inertia, et cetera, more consulting work, having a team there uh, to handhold them a bit as they as they start that process. 
You know, I love the transformation first mile. Can you talk a little bit about how, A, how significant it is, and B, someone could be listening right now and saying, well, you know what? My first mile really sucked. <laughs> it didn't go real well. How do I bounce back? You know, how do I, how do I kind of catch up a little bit? Can you talk into those two things a little? Yeah, happy to. And this is a big part of, we put a book out uh, last year called Competing in the Connecting World. We think that uh, competition in, in the connected world is different from the uh, unconnected world, not disconnected, but the unconnected world, meaning uh, before all this digital uh, uh, data was flowing from products and people and throughout. And uh, uh, basically that first mile, we break into three parts. We want to make this super easy for the executive. We say the first step is to envision the disruptive potential, understand what's going on in industry and what, uh, what capabilities are necessary to, to uh, succeed in it. The second part is assessing your uh, capability gaps, the magnitude of them, people that uh, leaders that see uh, a huge gap, see risk. Uh, those that see a very small gap, see opportunity. And, and if you're on either end of those, likely there's motivation to do something. If you're in the middle and you're just kind of running around uh, thinking, well, maybe it's a little bit of a change, you're probably not going to do anything. So that's really where the motivation drives. And then the last piece is investing uh, to implement the response. Those first two things happen in small conference rooms, closed doors, white paper, strategy offices, et cetera. Uh, the hard part is actually investing and taking the time. And we call that the first mile because we do use the marathon uh, uh, reference there. I'm not a marathon runner myself. My wife happens to be. But a lot of uh, marathon runners say you need to really set your pace in that first mile. Your, your success over the long haul will be set in the first mile of the uh, of the long run. And that's kind of the same metaphor we, we play with. I love that. Now, you know, for someone like me, like I, when I jump into something, I jump into it, right? So if it's a change, if it's a transformation, I'm going to go full bowl, you know, just full blown into it. So are you saying that that first mile, not so much pacing yourself, but figuring out your rhythm, your cadence, what, you know, how exactly the process you go about getting things done? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot about, number one, understanding what the race is, right? Uh, getting the right perspective set, understanding what is happening, that this is likely, when, when we talk about this connectivity, at least, this digitization, uh, the, you know, this catalyst for change, it is a, uh, it's, it's what academics would call a technological discontinuity. Uh, it is technology that is making what normal was discontinuous from what it is uh, tomorrow. And it's that, that technological discontinuity is always, 100%, always, result in industry disruption. So when people are looking at change, a lot of times we spend time speaking to them about what type of change are you, are you, are you imagining this technology, this change, or this, this, this catalyst is only going to force a small improvement? Or are you really thinking that the whole industry structure around you is, uh, is shifting? Maybe you're going to be in a different business. Maybe this is a corporate strategy. What business are you in kind of conversation, or perhaps it's a business strategy. How are you going to compete in the business you're already in differently? Most of the time, people think of strategic change at, uh, at the functional level. How is how this going to affect marketing? How is this going to affect IT? How is this going to affect something? So we try to get them up first. Think about, are you in the same business tomorrow? Uh, if you are, or if you're not, how are you going to compete in it? And then eventually bring them back down and drive them out. So that's that, most of the time, that's what we're looking for. How much they jump in is definitely their decision, but we want to make sure they're thinking about that jump uh, you know, with the right context around them. Can we talk a little bit? I, I'm just sitting here picturing a listener thinking, okay, disruption. Some some folks look at disruption and disruption, disrupting, excuse me, industries with a negative connotation. But truth be told, what we're talking about is change. And, and we're living in a, a time where the pace and range of change is unlike anything we've ever seen. So can you talk about the, the significance of the understanding of what disruption really is? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're real intentional or I'm real intentional with the words that we choose. We use that word disruption to only be applying to the industrial level change, the industry disruption and, and in uh, disruption for us and, and for some academics would be uh, stable markets. You can pretty much say who the leaders in those markets are. Think of a company, you know, here, here's your top five companies, here's your next five companies, here's your next five companies. And there might be minor change year to year of uh, two overtakes one, three overtakes four, or three drops below four, et cetera. But for the most part, you have stable markets. And uh, especially folks in the financial markets, they like that. They like understanding long-term hold type of buys and, and long-term growth. Disruption means uh, probably many new entrants. Uh, it probably means something has changed in the environment where uh, you may have startups, you may have uh, new entrants from other industries coming in, you might have consolidation in the market, but over the course of a fairly short period of time, maybe measured in years uh, or you know, four, five or six, seven years, you have major shakeups. And you're seeing that more and more. You can look at the retail market and see what's happened with the uh, you know, companies like Sears or Kmart or Toys R Us, they're completely going out of business or being rebranded or relaunched as on online stores. You can see that a decade ago in the media industry of how the distribution of, of at the time, CDs uh, were done in a brick and mortar kind of way and driven out. You can see it in, in an industry I know pretty well, automotive, moving more towards a mobility market instead of just selling hardware, selling these, uh, these steel-made cars. Uh, a lot of the valuation out there and a lot of the the money being spent currently is about moving goods and people and ideas. It's mobility. It's the movement of things, not so much the uh, the, the hardware that's going to do it. So it's this kind of level of, of change that we're talking about, industrial, in industry level uh, disruption. And then we talk about at the firm level, firms to respond to that have to transform. That's the change that that we use at the company level. So what, what will the company do? It needs to transform in response or in preparation for the industry disruption. So in other words, how, how important is preparation? <laughs> well, it's everything. I mean, I mean, I mean it's, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, you know, you, you use a lot of sports metaphors on, on this podcast and uh, it's, uh, you know, if you're not, if you don't practice, you're not going to be able to play well, right? And so it's a preparation can be practicing the skills and preparation can be uh, understanding the, the plays. Uh, uh, so take away from the metaphor, it's, it's, it's extremely important. I would say that uh, the, the only caveat I'd give to it is you can't prepare for too long. Um, uh, in fact, we, we have a chapter in the book that we talk about is prepare, don't predict. So preparation for a lot of stable companies has been, you know, forecasting what, uh, what will growth look like? Uh, how many units will you sell? What percentage of the market will you take? And in stable times, you probably can forecast pretty accurately. When you start thinking about how all this stuff is changing, industries may be shifting, uh, you can start preparing. You can absolutely prepare and get some of the capabilities necessary. And you can say things like, well, data is more important than it was yesterday. I'm going to start getting data scientists. Or uh, I read all about uh, artificial intelligence and that's starting to become a big trend. I better start dabbling in AI uh, in order to be relevant in the future. But really understanding, really understanding a forecastable level is probably not there. So that's part of the, the preparation. Preparation is super important. And you may need to think about preparation uh, different than prediction. And that's, that's what we spend a lot of time helping clients try to get comfortable with. So, so tying that into the athletics of business and, and the mindset that the traits and behaviors of high-performing teams and elite athletes are key to your success in business, as you prepare for, for the disruption and for the changes, sometimes things don't come to fruition and don't evolve in the way that you think they might. How significant are those behavior skills and leadership skills um, that you and I have talked about um, managing those situations. 
Well, I, the, the, the management of I mean, management skills are going to be important today as they are uh, the future leadership, uh, you know, maybe a little different than management. At least that's the it's, it's pretty, pretty talked about these days of the difference between lead, leading and managing. Right. Uh, if we if we were to throw it on this kind of transformation and disruption space. Leading needs to be able to get out in front a little bit more. They need to uh, help maybe move, remove some of the barriers that that then managers can uh, can manage through. I'd say that maybe management isn't changing as much. I'd say leadership is probably becoming more and more into focus. And uh, you know, one of the skills, one of the capabilities that we talk about a lot is uh, is bravery. Is uh, being able to be brave enough to uh, to support these change inertia inside of corporations, especially ones that have been had success, is is a difficult thing to overcome. Uh, inertia comes in several flavors. We can certainly talk about it if you'd like, but inertia is what makes people change slowly. And if you look at these times in the past of disruption, if you look, we, we use examples like. Uh, uh, imagine the world before the internal combustion engine and then after, or imagine before electrical power uh, generation and distribution and then after. This is the kind of uh, technological change that we think is happening right now with with data, with uh, with what we broadly uh, refer to as connect, the connected world technologies. You add all these different micro technologies up together and it's a massive change. Well, if you, if you study those patterns, getting to the point, if you study those patterns uh, in the in the past, firms that move more quickly uh, are the ones that have a higher chance to succeed. So how important is leadership? How important are these skills? Extremely important because you have to, uh, have to be brave enough to move forward, lead, build some space and let the managers manage into it. But you have to motivate them to say, hey, this is a safe thing to do to try something new uh, that's going to break the patterns of the old. And in and, and that, and I, I don't think I worded the question properly, but that was a great answer. What, what I was getting at, so building that level of authenticity as a leader and becoming a resilient leader, right? Like accepting reality, not settling for it and having the ability to respond in a, in, in a way where you don't fall victim to inertia. You can still, um, you know, your decision-making is still quick. It is, you're still, um, you, you still make decisions with conviction. That's, that's sort of, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you 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 know it from a from from the courts. You know it from uh, from from your uh, you know from your business life as well. Is you can't make uh, quick decisions irresponsibly, but uh, breaking down large decisions into small micro decisions that you can make on a much more rapid pace. Uh, checking checking the decisions to make sure they were the right ones uh, as you go. But absolutely, the the the, the importance of of leadership and speed uh, to decision making is absolutely critical. So let's shift gears a little bit here. On episode 39, I had Jason Bay from Dompe on and just an unbelievable episode. And he talked about when he is bringing on, as he's, as he's building this business here in the United States at Dompe, the number one thing he looks for and the people that he's going to bring on board is the entrepreneur spirit. And I'm not sure that I can come up with another guest that has and embodies the entrepreneur spirit quite as much as you. Seeing that, did you not start your first firm when you were only 14 years old? Uh, well, I was 16. 16 so, I'm but, sorry. But, uh, yeah, it was in the teens. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> tell us, tell us where all that came from, and tell us what that, what that, what that's about. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my entrepreneur. I, I guess my entire career, I've probably been labeled either an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur. Uh, the, the the entrepreneur side. 16 years old. I was playing lacrosse. Was a pretty new sport to me. I'd, I'd grown up playing baseball as a, uh, as a as a pitcher, and when I reached that 14 year old level, I. Uh, I was told that I was no longer going to be a pitcher. I was going to be a great contributor to the team in the outfield and no disrespect to the outfielders, but that's a different game. Baseball is different from the outfield than it is from the mound. 
And uh, I just, I, I realized I wasn't in love with baseball. I was in love with pitching. And so when that happened, I, I, I crossed over sports my freshman year of high school, started playing some, uh, some lacrosse. And at the time, lacrosse in Michigan, which is where I'm from, uh, was really a new sport. And in order to get equipment, it was a real pain in the butt. And so a few, uh, one of my friends had uh, a great skill at stringing sticks. If you're a lacrosse fan at all, you know that the, the pocket in your stick is extremely important. And he had incredible ability to do that. I was patient enough to, uh, to be able to dye plastic and have big bats of writ dye in my basement. And <laughs> we dyed, dyed heads and uh, customized things. And uh, basically, long story short, a few of us got together and said, well, we've got some demand for ourselves. We've got demand on our team. And really, the, the small number of teams around Michigan all need this stuff. And we launched a business. Uh, we incorporated with the state, uh, all took uh, officer roles. Um, uh, you know, started uh, wholesaling the equipment in from the East Coast, the hotbed of lacrosse, and started redistributing here. So it was basically a, a distribution and a customization shop around lacrosse. Ran that for a few years, learned a tremendous amount of lessons, shut it down when I was in my early 20s, and then I became the entrepreneur for a bunch of years before founding CGS and doing some entrepreneurial things again. That's awesome. That's a great story. And you weren't quite done with founding things in lacrosse. Tell us about uh, founding the lacrosse program at Oakland University. Yeah, I, I, I guess I've, uh, I'm somebody along the way, probably my mother or somebody just said, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And uh, anytime I reached a place that I just saw a need, I, I decided to do things. So yeah, when I, I went to a university called Oakland University here in Southeast Michigan, uh, at the time it was a smaller school than it is today. Uh, I went there because I was running the company and didn't want to give that company up. So instead of going to a big school away, but this, this, this university did not have a lacrosse team. And I, I just asked some questions of the student uh, organization uh, uh, leadership saying, can we do this? And there was a lot of rumors at the time that there was not allowed to have any contact sports at the university. It was only a rumor, went into the, into the archives and got some librarians to help me out looking at some of the, uh, the records and contact sports were allowed. They just hadn't really taken off at OU. So back in the day before the internet, we hung up some flyers on, uh, and had a, had a first meeting and I was blown away. We had 78 people come out wow. for the first meeting. Uh, first team had 45 people on it. And uh, it really had a, a, a pretty nice history uh, since that point. People have continued to play ball there and they've gone on the national championship level for the club program, never won varsity. But uh, it, uh, you know, I, was, I was fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. So did you coach the team as well? I, yeah, I was kind of captain coach at the beginning. And then when I graduated, uh, prior to starting to travel a lot from my first job, I, I was, uh, was the coach wasn't playing any longer. And then I handed the reins to uh, Dwayne Hicks, who was a storied lacrosse guy here in uh, Southeast Michigan, who had, was an All-American at uh, Notre Dame and grew up on the East Coast. And he, he really helped take it to the next level. And then I went back and was his assistant for a few years once they reached the national level. So how about all those experiences, those two experiences, I should say, how, how have those helped you as you have scaled and, and had this significant uh, success with CGS? Well, it, it, there's a really direct one uh, of, of actually founding CGS, and that's my, my wife, if, I, if I'm able to tell the story quickly. When Absolutely. I, when I left Volkswagen uh, if with a, a, a nice title and a a fairly decent job, chief strategy officer for IT and innovation and was uh, flying around the world doing a lot of things that were pretty important to me at the time and, and maybe impactful. Uh, you know, I left and decided to start taking interviews for the, for the next gig at, a, at probably some type of similar job. And my wife said to me, you know, are you really going to do this again? And I said, well, yeah, I'm 
fairly young and we need some money. And uh, she said, no, I don't mean that. She said, when you tell the story, uh, you know, over a, a cocktail or something to your friends about starting that company when you were 16 years old, your eyes glow. When you tell the stories of the, of the work you do at, uh, at large firms, you're, you're proud of it, but your eyes don't glow. And so I want, she, she challenged me and she said, you're either going to try this entrepreneurial thing again so you can stop talking about the history, <laughs> the ancient history, or you're going to be quiet about it because I just right. don't want to hear about when you were 16 anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> but she, so there was a very direct piece <laughs> of my past that, uh, that, that nudged me to, yeah. to, to get into it. But then in addition to that, I think... Uh, kind of being a person who has had found some success and a few failures along the way, but mostly I've, I've been fortunate to find some successes or versions of success uh, with starting things. It's given me an opportunity working with large companies to be that entrepreneur, either in the official capacity or the, the advisor and maybe coach a little differently to leaders that haven't had those opportunities to tell them, hey, it's okay to uh, redefine what failure is. Uh, call it a pivot. That's what, what entrepreneurs call it. You know, entrepreneurs, uh, startups call it, fail every day. And the funny thing is people are proud of that. They celebrate it in the entrepreneurial community. If in a large firm, uh, stability is celebrated more. And so failures, even though they're small in comparison, oftentimes they're, 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 they're looked down upon. And so just little lessons like that have been, uh, been extremely helpful as I've continued to navigate my career. So let's talk about that because that's really significant what you just said and seeing failure as, you know, growing through failure, not getting through failure, right? And, and learning from it and pivoting. And you talk about stability in the corporate culture. What were some of the ways that you would change the way people looked at that? Well, when I was in it, doing it myself, uh, I mean, the, it wasn't just me helping to change it. You know, I had incredible air cover, uh, senior, senior leadership that basically said, we believe in this. And uh, the day-to-day stumbles, the day-to-day uh, sideways looks, the the day-to-day swimming upstream against the corporate culture, we get it. Just keep, keep the faith because it's not about today's revenue. It's not about even tomorrow's revenue. It's about changing the culture of this place and letting us compete differently. And so that at the end of the day, if people are listening and want to, you know, that's, that's an easy thing to say and really hard to do, really hard to do, but don't lose focus on that, that, the importance of uh, either the founder, if you're a small company, or the, the executive leadership, if you're a more established company, uh, believing in that level of change and then and having your back. Um, it may, may be taking it down a couple notches from that. There's a lot, I, I said earlier, kind of calling it pivots instead of failures. There's a whole cultural aspect of redefining what success looks like. And I'm a big one for KPIs. I, I really believe that if you don't measure, you can't manage it. Uh, if you don't know what to measure, you're probably, don't, you're probably not working towards the same goals. And so as you're defining your KPIs, if you take stable company KPIs and try to uh, immediately push those onto entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial or innovative kind of ideas they're going to look a lot like failures uh, because they're going to be small revenue probably or lower cost impacts or take too much time. So you need to redefine the, the, the KPIs. Uh, talk about the number of ideas generated. Talk about the number of, idea, um, number of proof of concepts of those ideas that, that drove forward. Eventually, you need to get to the hard metrics, the, the money and whatnot, but you can't do that in the first month probably. Uh, you probably can't do that in the first six months or first year. So KPI selection is, is also another uh, extremely important piece to, to kind of control the, the storyline around innovation and change. What, along those lines, what are some of the bigger challenges that you have faced? Not, you know, with Volkswagen, with CGS, what are some of the biggest cha- bigger challenges you have faced and what was the process of turning those around? 
Well, I mean, there's been a, a pl plenty of challenges, both small and and, and large. Uh, I'm not sure that any, even the size of them matter, but I'd say broad stating, I mean, I can give some specific examples, but the, the broadest piece of the challenges always come down to people. Uh, I, I've always said that people are the best and worst part of a job. And uh, people, not not so much as in we had a, a terrible employee, we had to fire them. Not those, luckily, have been very, very good, knock on wood, that I haven't had that kind of thing more, much more than. People are tough. Uh, the the hardest part of organizations is, is typically the, the human beings that that make them up. Uh, that's really where the culture gets uh, uh, hardened for the, for the most part. And so, culture and the people that uh, that live the culture are the hardest part of change. Uh, there's all kinds. You know, we we stem this back to to inertia and uh, that that kind of cultural uh, type of change that that's oftentimes referred to as dominant logic inertia. It's the dominant logic of the leadership that of how they see the world, and most of the time they're not doing anything bad. Most of the time they're doing everything right for their history, uh, but convincing them to do something different has been a stumbling block. You know, I, I the. A big part of the reason I left Volkswagen uh, was because I was doing a lot of the right stuff at the wrong time. Um, and I've had, I've been very fortunate. BW has been a client of ours for years and uh, I've got a lot of good friends there still. And so uh, I've had some be able to come and in retrospect, since it's, it's, it's ancient history in some ways now, we can have real conversations about that and that, that works out all right. Uh, they've We've been able to say that so much of the stuff we were doing wasn't the wrong stuff. It was maybe just at the wrong time uh, under the wrong under uh, under leaders that weren't ready for that kind of change. And so, people, I would say, is probably the uh, <laughs> in a nutshell are some of the hardest challenges and uh, and lots of different examples of those. I love doing the right stuff at the wrong time, but let's say you're right in the middle of it and you know you're doing the right stuff, but you know it's the wrong time. What do you do? I don't know if there's a one fit answer, but some of the things that you you, you certainly can do is you can uh, you can be brave enough to shut it down, which is probably one of the hardest things to do, especially if you have sunk cost into it. Um, but if uh, the, the way that I would suggest shutting it down is using some of that language, some of those pivot types of language, but actually talk about that it was a success in learning. It was really difficult, depending depending on how you sold the project in the first place. Uh, the second thing is split it up. Uh, find find some of the, the the parts of the the right thing at the wrong time, and uh, try to adjust that into what are the parts that could be right now versus the parts that might be might be later. I, I guess the the thing that I would that's the hardest for me to suggest has been some of the hardest for for us to to advise on. But it, it's very difficult to to to, to advise to just uh, keep going. Um, that's that's a difficult that's a difficult thing, but I think that what I would suggest to those that are listening to this, uh, they have to really understand why it's the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Is it the wrong time because the market is saying it's the wrong time, or is it the wrong time because the leaders uh, above you or the the sponsors of the program uh, aren't brave enough? And depending on the answer to that, I think that what you do is different. Um, and yeah, that's a pretty complex one, probably. But that's uh, that's again here here I go. It's a, it's all about people. <laughs> No, but I love that because really you think about that. Why is it the wrong time? And is it the market? Well, how long is it going to stay like that? Right. Is it the top leadership? Well, you know, and the thing I really, I, I liked that you said was splitting it up. Okay. What is right for right now? And why don't we do that? And I guess that almost goes to playing to your strengths, does it not? Uh, yeah. And, and your strengths being your as a human, but probably more appropriately for in this context, your as an organization, right? Uh, what is the organization's strengths? Uh, what, where can the 
to be successful? Can they truly make that pivot uh, if they launch that new product? Will it have success? So yeah, absolutely playing to the strengths, knowing what you know, knowing what uh, your differentiators are, and likely uh, deciding if those differentiators are going to matter in the next time phase, three years, five years, whatever your time horizon is, and then uh, and and really focusing on those differentiators because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters is the differentiation. Right. 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 I'm going to read something from your bio, if that's okay with you, because I, uh, I sure I'm, I'm nervous, but yeah, I get after <laughs> don't, don't be nervous, but, but I love this. I mean, and, and this really talks about probably why your wife says you glow when you talked about the company you found when you're six, 16 years old. Um, but Greg is often referred to as a visionary leader who prides himself in recognizing common sense solutions for complex problems and motivating teams to reach well beyond the typical boundaries to achieve greatness. Where, where did that come from and how do you do that? Well, someone helped me write that, uh, <laughs> that, that bio at one point. So it was probably somebody that was trying to, uh, uh well, there, there has to be some sort of truth to it. Come on. <laughs> there has, uh, I think that's awesome though. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I've, it, it came from the corporate setting, but the people are made up of their experience. And, and uh, as, as you and I have spoken before, Ed, uh, I've had the great fortune of coaching sports for a long while. Um, I, I said I started playing lacrosse when I was 14 and I started coaching lacrosse that same year uh, because it, uh, just because of some circumstances. I started coaching some really young kids and I've been coaching ever since. And so I think motivating people and trying to be a leader versus a manager has been really in my blood for a, a long while. And I think that some of that probably comes out in the way that I approach things in work. I, I really do, do believe that I'm good at some things and there's a lot of things that I'm not uh, that fantastic at and trying to bring some people in to my organization and surround myself with people that are good that, that can parallel me in some instances, be little mini-me's, if you will, that, that help with scaling. But maybe more importantly, bring people in that are better than me at a whole bunch of stuff, no matter if that's communication or if that's uh, some of the analysis work or, or certainly these days in the age around technology itself, there's a tremendous amount that I'm not any good at in there. So I, I think that trying to motivate those people and make them a team and realize that half the fun is just being part of a fantastic team and going on the journey is, is part of what I'm, uh, at least I pride myself in enough to try it. And I think just trying it sometimes uh, it works out. That's great. And, and we know, and you and I have talked about this, but people want managers that coach. They want, they want to know that their work's important, right? They want to know that they're needed. Um, and they, they want to, they want someone that can embrace their growth. Not just, they'll tolerate being told what to do, but they really embrace when, when they have someone that's going to lead them versus manage them. And I know you've mentioned it a couple of times, but can you talk into how significant, um, the, not only the ability, but the willingness for leaders to coach their people is. Yeah. I'm so glad that you didn't ask me how I do it or why I'm <laughs> better or something because I, it's something I worry about. I mean, uh, it's extremely important. Um, and, and I said, I guess one of the things I would just say about it is I think that leaders that are good at this, I think are intentional about it. And uh, I've talked about, I've had the great fortune of speaking to other leaders uh, that I feel are also good leaders or, or coaches or, or making space for people to succeed and fail, but the safe failure zones, that type of thing. And I think that the one common factor that I've, the pattern I've picked up is we all worry about it. Maybe it's become second nature, but we, none of us that I've spoken to uh, take it for granted. And most of us worry about, are we making enough space, uh, et cetera. And 
that's what I've tried to do. I, I can't say, I bet if you interviewed, if you got the, you know, if you got some of my team members to be super honest and not, uh, and truly realize they would never, it would never get back to me or something. <laughs> they, they might say that I'm not always so fantastic. And sometimes it does feel like I've got my thumb on them. And right. I, I, I like to think that sometimes when I do that, it's actually to protect them. Uh, but I, I'm sure I've got my faults as well, but making space for people, um, giving them room to, to try things, even when you know how to do it better, uh, approaching the conversations in ways that are more coaching and asking them questions and drawing things out. And then once in a while showing them how it's done. Mm-hmm. These are some of the, you know, the small tools that I think go into a coach's toolkit. Right. And you know, when, when you say those things, I think back to, you know, when I was a college basketball coach, I think back to the coaches that I had. And, and we talked a little bit about this earlier was the joy you see in people all of a sudden realizing their upside, realizing their potential and, and really working towards that and moving towards that. And one of the things that keeps coming back to me with this is as a coach, you try to figure out a way to things, how to get to your people and how to put them in position to be successful. And is that something that as, as the CEO, is that something that you talk to on a consistent basis about with your leadership team? I do. Uh, I, I, I do. And I, I would say that, you know, this, so I'll, I'll turn it back and not, not, not ask you the question for project to you as a, as a coach. I think one of the hardest things to do is take someone who thinks they're a, a particular position and put them in a different position because you can see in them what they, what they've got. And, uh, luckily for me, I, I, I'm, CGS is a boutique size firm, you know, we're 20-ish people. And so everybody's got to be a little bit of everything. So even when I move people around, it's not ripping them away from what they think they are and putting them, you know, to a diff- totally different division, if you will. But even recently in this year, we had some really rough times at the, at the going into this 2019 year, coming out of 2018, we, we lost some uh, two contracts that we shouldn't have. And We've we've reflected on that, determined all the, but in that process, I had to put some people in places that uh, that I had known for a long while that they probably should be, but they didn't think they should be, and it was a it was a challenging road. No one left. Everybody's uh, I think turned the corner on it, but those two to three months uh, in that change process of ourselves. I mean, we're experts in change. That's what people hire us for. Right. We're also the shoemaker a little bit. Our shoes are ugly sometimes, and so we had to do it to ourselves a little bit. And uh, that is absolutely incredibly important and incredibly difficult. Uh, that, that, as I said, that latter, that latter piece that you stated there of putting people in, uh, in positions where you think they can succeed, where they may not yet recognize it. And here's the last part. Mm-hmm. It's extremely rewarding when they realize it. And, uh, if people are listening to say, I, I've got, uh, you know, an employee just like that, or I've got a, a team member just like that. They, I've always thought they would be better in fill in the blank sales or delivery or, uh, product design or whatever it is, but that's not where they think that they are. The, the one thing that I can say with pretty good certainty is once they figure it out, they're going to thank you for it. Um, you know, that's, that's what a great coach is, is let people realize, you know, their potential maybe before they realize it. And, and, and to be able to see things, you know, great coaches see things in people that they might not see in themselves. And how, I just to go back a little bit, when you had that conversation where you know, you're hoping they're going to be coachable in this situation, right? But you, you have to just cut to the chase and explain to them, here's why we're putting you in this, in, in this uh, position. You know, here's why we're making this change. And how do you handle, and I promise I'll stop uh, using the how-to questions, but I'm curious as to how you approach that conversation, uh, knowing that there's probably going to be some pushback from their side. 
Well, I guess the, the you know, I went to business school along the way, so it all the, the right answer to everything is it depends. Uh, in, in this case, it depends. Uh, it, to me, it's very uh, when you get down to the change logic at the human level, at the firm level, it's easy. You, you, you take everything, you inventory it on walls, and you say, "Hey, you need this capability; you should go buy it or build it." And it's all very analytical. When you get down to the human level, when we're talking about this, how it applies to a human being, this is not your job. It becomes a little, for me at least. Uh, you have to inform it a little bit with what do I know about this individual? What, where are they in their life? Uh, are they just starting a family? Are they uh, deep into their, their career? What motivates them? Why are they here? And all that kind of blends in. And, and I'd say more direct versus less direct. Uh, it's really hard to do, but that's, uh, you know, rip the bandaid quickly. But how direct and how you deliver that direct message for one party, it might be just a five-minute conversation straight in. Here's where you're going. It's good for you. Uh, you know, toughen up, uh, step up our lip, and let's go. Or another party, it might be a, a journey to, uh, to help them understand and answer the why seven times before you really get to the punchline. But as direct as you can be uh, with the individual, I think, is absolutely the right, uh, the right way to get there because it gives them the benefit, in my mind at least, it respects them enough to actually give them an answer. And number two, uh, it, it, it starts to give them uh, a chance for them to succeed in it because they actually understand. Most, most people, unless you didn't ask this, but I'll, I'll throw it out there as a little, little nugget at the end. Love freebies. Most folks when it comes to change, they, they, just, <laughs> they just want to be, they don't want to be told how to do things day-to-day micromanage. But most of the time, people expect of leaders to tell them what success looks like. And if uh, you can, you can apply that to the company level or you can apply it to the individual. But if you, if you're saying, Hey, I want you to try this new thing, tell them what success in that role looks like. And then say, I think you can be really, really successful. Uh, here's some space. Go, go do it. I'm here to help. I love that. So before, before we start wrapping up, there's a couple other things I want to touch on. First, your book. Can you tell us about your book, the journey to writing it and just what, what's in there and all the value that folks can get from it? Well, I appreciate that. The uh, The book is called Competing in the Connecting World. It came out the uh, latter half of last year, been blown away with the uh, with, with the people that have appreciated it. Uh, it is, as as one reader said, it's a, a field man, a field guide for the disruptors or for the innovators out there. It's uh, it's intended to help people understand that first mile, think about some things uh, around that change, and give little stories along the way to to make it real. The journey to writing it, oh boy. Um, I've always enjoyed writing. I'm not, never said I was good at it. And I had a co-author, uh, Dr. Warren Ritchie, great friend, uh, colleague, and has played many roles in my life, including mentor. Uh, the best and the worst part of the process was having Warren along. Uh, <laughs> he, he, we wrote three, we, we, we believe we probably wrote three books in the time that we wrote this one because we, we just weren't satisfied. And then it was more his style than more my style. Finally, we got a publisher that was just fantastic to work with and, uh, and help us guide that uh, that plane to it to a landing and, and got it out there so that's, that's a bit about the journey that had to be that had to be pretty rewarding though working together on that absolutely uh, i mean a big part of that he decided to do it with me was because uh because it was something that we could do together and i think he's in retrospect i think he, he appreciates all i'm not sure he was always appreciative during the process uh, it was definitely as he says it was more my project than his but uh, we've known each other since 2002. We've worked together in different capacities, and uh, I wanted to ensure that some of the side conversations that he and I have had the luxury of having got uh, cemented somewhere that others could take advantage. And as I said, some people have said some nice things about it, so I've been very appreciative of it. That's great. Now, let's talk about the podcast. And you know, we talked about this earlier. I love the title, You, Me, uh, and Your Top Three. Where in the world? I mean, that is, I think that's brilliant. 
<laughs> well, thanks so much. The uh, the podcast is a bit of an extension of the book, not not one for one, but the latter part of the book is about lead- leadership. It's uh, it's about being brave, and that's really what the podcast celebrates. It's a little context into distrib- uh, disruption and transformation, but it's really speaking more to the leader, saying, uh, "Here's a little. Let's have a little nugget every week of speaking to leaders." So I interview folks. So it's uh, it's it's you, as in the. Uh, the guest. It's me as in the host and the top three are the guests, top three closest people that they surround themselves with. We call that the virtual advisory board, but who do they surround themselves with to give them the ability to be brave, to lead through disruption, to find successes, to stand up after failures. So it's very much a a story conversation. And most of the time I'm absolutely blown away by uh, by the people that they bring in, both because sometimes they're famous people. Uh, I just had uh, a young 19-year-old kid on uh, who his first mentor that he, well, his first mentor in the list of fame, let's put it that way, is Mark Cuban. Um, uh, you know, so I'm blown away by that, but I'm also blown away by the personal advice these uh, these mentor give and, and the good interviews are, are the ones that, that people are opening up and sharing how that mentorship actually happens and how bravery flows and how they uh, how they lean on these these mentors these close people in their lives. I love it. And can you share the story about how you came up with with that name? Because it, it's yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I you know I, w- I knew I wanted to do uh, something on content. I decided to do podcasts because speaking is easier than writing for me. And I was having coffee with a buddy of mine. I think he was guest number two actually on the on on my podcast. Uh, and we were talking about you know leadership. And, and we got on to, you know, how do you interview great people? And he, he surprised me. I was kind of fell on my chair. He said, well, and he's an experienced guy. He said, I only asked one question. I said, one question. I mean, come on, how can you do this? So the only question I ask you, name the five closest people in your life. And I thought, and, and he went on to explain that because he's lead, he's, he's hiring senior folks. Uh, he's looking, the pattern he's looking for that he was looking for, it was uh, people who were surrounding themselves with people who, like who they wanted to be people that surround themselves with people from their past, people that surround themselves with, uh, you know, maybe just their family and stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're people that are already living the life that they, that they've already gotten to where they, they want. He was looking for leaders that were surrounding themselves with people like they wanted to be. So if it was a sales leader that he, he was hoping to see five incredible sales leaders that he, they were surrounding themselves with his, to be his mentors. If it was a tech leader, five incredible tech leaders. And I just picked up on that bolted it to a, a story or a saying that my grandfather used to say to me, which was, you're known by the company you keep. And uh, I realized hey, this has kind of been in my blood for a long while. It's probably why I have a success. It's be, people used to call me a networker and I used to think of it as kind of an offensive statement. Like I'm just some slimy guy out constantly trying to get something out of people. But I realized in, as I've gotten older that it's actually it's kind of like my superpower. It's uh, I've, I've I've invested in relationships. I really care about people, and you know what? Those relationships they 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 really return. So that's uh, that's my story on that. That's great. That is a great story. Now, before I ask you the last question, where can people find more out and more from you, uh, as well as CGS? Well, I, I'm hopeful I can pass a whole bunch of stuff to the show notes, but for the listeners that aren't yes. going to click through, uh, Gregory Garrett is spelled G-R-E-G-G-O-R-Y. So double G in the middle and Garrett's got two R's and two T's. And that uh, unique spelling, if you can remember that second G, kind of uh, drives everything on all of in LinkedIn, Gregory Garrett, uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram and all these places, Greg with two G's, Garrett. Uh, and if you want the simple one, it's www.cgsadvisors.com is the, the corporate address and you can get my bio and everything there. 
Fantastic. And that will be uh, in the show notes as well. And uh, to rate and rank this episode, uh, please go to iTunes for obviously for previous episodes. Uh, also can go to Stitcher, Google Play, as well as theathleticsofbusiness.com. And Greg, for your last question, I know you love to teach, right? And I know you love to give back. So you're sitting in front of a, a room full of young entrepreneurs, which I know you've done thousands of times over, and you're going to give them one piece of advice for them to go out there and be successful. What is that one piece of advice? Oh, wow. Just uh, only one, is it? Um, no, you, I think, can, you can go. You no, can. no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I, I've, I've said it several times throughout the podcast and it's become a little bit of a, 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 a calling card for me at this point, but it, it's simply be brave. Uh, it's, it's just those two words and bravery to every person will mean something different. I, I run an exercise around this, uh, oftentimes in class to ask people to close their eyes and imagine, uh, imagine brave souls. And most of the time they think of military or, uh, you know, legends that have, have done tremendous things. And I just ask them to apply that to themselves. Maybe that means that they're going to be a soldier. Maybe that means they're going to go defend the nation, et cetera, which is true, true bravery. There's I, absolutely those are the images that should come to mind, but how can they be brave in their life? How can they be brave in their workplace? And I think that that's so important as, uh, as we face transformation is you have to be brave. Wow. That's powerful. I love that. And so that is your one piece of advice. Be brave again, Greg, I cannot thank you enough. This was, this was fantastic. And I really, really appreciate you joining us today. Ed, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening to the athletics of business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.